Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. We're in Esther. Last week we finished chapter 5. To sort of recap what's happened so far, Haman has been elevated to the position of vizier, where he is second in command to the king. Mordecai has gotten crosswise of him, and so Haman has gone to the king and has told the king that there is a people in the kingdom, or in the empire, who doesn't follow his rules, and the implication is that they are subversive and a security risk. Haman then says that if we eliminate these guys, we'll put 15,000 talents of silver into your treasury. So the king signs off on it. Mordecai goes into sackcloth and ashes and passes the word to the queen. She goes into three days of fasting, uh, no food, no water. You can assume that she did pray, but it doesn't say so. And at the end of that time, she goes into the king, and the rule is that nobody comes into the king's presence unless the king asks for them. And if someone does come into the king's presence without being asked for, if the king doesn't extend his scepter and recognize them, then that person is killed. And as I said last time, I very strongly suspect that that's a rule that was put into place by Haman. And the idea, with the king's consent, is to strictly control access to him. Because remember, he has survived an assassination plot and has lost his first queen due to, due to a hasty decision. So Esther comes into his presence, and after three days with no food and no water, she looks kind of bedraggled, even though she is in her royal robes. And the king immediately sees that something's wrong and asks her what she wants. And she says, what I want is for the king and Haman to come to the dinner that I have prepared for him. King says, okay, rustles up Haman, and the two of them show up for dinner. Nothing much happens at dinner. The king has a great time. At the end of the dinner, he asks Esther, what is it you want? And she says, come back tomorrow, and I'll tell you. Now, one of the things we talked about, and I'm going to go over briefly, is what Esther's plan is. First off, Haman has been elevated to a position of gatekeeper for the king, and it's his specific area of responsibility where he is in charge of policy. He has recommended a policy to the king, which is exterminate all the Jews, and the king has bought it. So as his wife, who is at this point a young woman, she's only been married to him a short time, she has no track record in political stuff, and for her to go head-to-head -head against Haman, who was specifically chosen for his policy expertise, is just not going to work. So what she has to do is she has to get him in an arena where he is not the expert. So what she does is she brings Haman into the arena of the king's family. That's her turf. That's not his turf. What she sets up is she has not seen the king in a month, that doesn't mean the king has been celibate for a month. He's got a whole stable of them out there. He just hasn't been with her in a month. So the queen shows up after having not seen the king for a month, 
asks him to come to a dinner in her apartment. And oh, by the way, bring Haman. So the natural thing that one would suspect is, gee, babe, I haven't seen you in a month. How about if we have this nice little candlelit dinner with some wine and stuff and your chief advisor? So what she's doing is she is setting up a situation where Haman is out of his element and she's setting up a situation where the king is going to be led to believe that Haman may be going for more power than the king wants him to have. That's the setup from her point of view. Oh, by the way, one other thing. Haman at this point is clueless. Got no idea what's going on. See, because Haman has got policy duties. He doesn't have harem duties. So it is not the case that Haman has any idea who the king is sleeping with from day to day. Haman doesn't know that Esther hasn't been visited by the king in a month. Well, he doesn't have any reason to know it. Because again, this is out of his area of responsibility. King's got other people to manage his stable. So this is entirely set up to drive the king into a mild case of paranoia. Well, the king doesn't seem to get it at first. So what she says at the end of the evening is, well, come on back tomorrow night and I will tell you what my request is. So at that point, the king goes back to his quarters. Haman leaves the palace and on the way out, he runs into Mordecai. And again, Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. This drives Haman into a rage because it's a problem. It's a tactical problem. So now Haman's got a tactical problem. When he was elevated to the position of vizier, the command went out through him from the king that everybody's to bow down to him. Mordecai refuses. This represents a challenge to his position and his authority. Haman's response was to attack Mordecai's people. And the idea there is that's going to bring Mordecai to heel. In other words, the, the intended result there is for Mordecai to come crawling on his belly to Haman and beg to have the decree reversed. And in that, he will then have consolidated his power over Mordecai. That's the intended result. Didn't happen. Mordecai instead takes to the streets, starts wailing, puts on sackcloth and ashes, starts doing all sorts of stuff against him. So when Mordecai again fails to bow down before him, now Haman has got a serious problem. He has not managed to bring Mordecai to heel. Mordecai, if he's left to his own devices, is going to continue to make waves and is going to continue to try and raise resistance to Haman. Remember the pretense that he used to get the decree against the Jews. These people are living in your kingdom or your empire, but they are not like you. They don't follow our laws. They're subversive, and oh, by the way, we can turn a prophet by killing them. So he puts all this in the king's best interest to get rid of the Jews. For him to try and kill Mordecai is strictly assassinating a political rival, and there's no way he can cast that as being in the king's best interest. So now he's got this problem. Mordecai is a threat because Mordecai has not knuckled under. Mordecai is busily trying to foment resistance to him. Yet, if Haman has him assassinated, it very well could look bad to the king. 
So he goes and he consults with his family and they decide basically the threat from having Mordecai out there operating is greater than the threat of getting rid of him. But what we'll do in this process is we're going to hang him in a public manner. We're going to erect this gallows that's 75 feet high. And we're going to dangle this guy over the top of the city so that everybody sees what happens when you resist Haman. Remember, this is the only resistance that we know of in the book to, to Haman, is Mordecai. So if we hang him on this gallows 75 feet high over the, over the whole city, everybody's going to see, you don't mess with Haman. The translation can be gallows, it can be tree, it can be stake. So, at this point, we've got Haman's plan, which is go into the king the next morning, get permission to kill Mordecai. We've got Esther's plan, and both of them are now going to come to a head as we move into chapter 6. That night sleep deserted the king, and he ordered the book of records, the annals to be brought, and it was read to the king. There it was found written that Mordecai had denounced Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had plotted to do away with King Ahasuerus. The way this is typically taught is the book of Esther does not mention God anywhere. But God is moving behind the scenes. And one of the ways that it says that he's moving behind the scenes is he's the one that was poking the king and making him restless from milk and cookies in the middle of the night. And I'll go down and read over the annals so I can get some sleep. That is entirely possible. It is, however, also very possible that the king has suddenly realized what's going on. Because remember, the whole thing is, I haven't seen my wife in a month. She risks her life. It's not really a very big risk, but she does technically risk her life to come in. She's not after my manly body. What she wants to do is have dinner with me and my advisor. Whoa, what's up with this? So it's starting to percolate in his head that, whoa, something's going on here. What he's doing is realizing that Haman is perhaps too close, and Haman is perhaps too powerful, and maybe we ought to go look through the annals and see who else we got in the stable to maybe sort of balance the power out a little bit here. And of course, in that process, he reads about Mordecai. By the way, one of the other things to notice as you go through here, and we'll see it again in a minute, is everybody is terrified of Haman except the king. And one of the things that the king does is he goes out of his way to humiliate Haman in small ways. So when it comes time, for example, to go visit the queens, he sends somebody, tell Haman, hurry on up here, we're going up to see the queen. And he jerks him around just to keep him aware that there is, in fact, a leash here. And we're going to see that jerked on big time here in a minute. Verse 3. What honor or advancement has been conferred on Mordecai for this, the king inquired. Nothing at all has been done for him, replied the king's servants, who were in attendance on him. This is the first time since the incident with Vashti that we have another member of the court speak. That's significant, because up until now, the only voice that the king has heard, at least according to the print, has been Haman's. And Haman wants it that way. So nothing at all has been done for him, replied the king's servants who were in attendance on him. Who is in the court? The king asked. 
For Haman had just entered the outer court of the royal palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai impaled on the stake he had prepared for him. It is Haman standing in the court, the king's servants answered him. Let him enter, said the king. Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for a man whom the king desires to honor? This is a setup, and what he's going to do is he is going to explore Haman's deepest, most secret desires. Because Haman thinks, well, who would the king want to honor besides me? So by letting him say what he considers to be the ultimate honor, what Haman is now doing is exposing his thought process. And let's see what he says. Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let royal garb which the king has worn be brought and a horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal diadem has been set and let the attire and the horse be put in the charge of one of the king's noble courtiers and let the man whom the king desires to honor be attired and paraded on the horse through the city square where they proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king desires to honor. So notice what Haman's desires are. The king's paranoia has been lit up. He has all of a sudden realized that Haman is not the safe choice that he thought. He elevated Haman because of the assassination attempt. And he's suddenly realizing, this guy who's really close to me wants to dress up in my clothes and ride on my horse. Huh, does he want to ride the queen too? Uh, have I suddenly become extraneous in my own kingdom? What Haman has done by exposing his innermost thoughts here is he has basically set himself up for a fall because the king's already feeling paranoid. And when Haman says, make me look just like you. Whoa, what's going on here? So now what the king does is knocks Haman's knees out from under him. This is a calculated humiliation. In other cases, he is, you know, sort of makes Haman jump whenever he wants to jump. This is orders of magnitude stronger. Verse 10. Quick then, said the king to Haman, get the garb and the horse as you have said, and do this to Mordecai the Jew, who sits in the king's gate. Omit nothing of all you have proposed. So Haman took the garb and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square. And he proclaimed before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate while Haman hurried home, his head covered in mourning. In other words, Haman has got the word. He understands that he has just been cut down severely. There Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish stock, you will not overcome him. You will fall before him to your ruin. Somebody obviously remembers the story of the Amalekites and the Hebrews. Before, everybody was, yeah, go get this guy. Now, all of a sudden, oh man, you're in free fall. If this guy's a Jew, you're not going to recover. 14. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurriedly brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And again, this is another one of those little, go get that guy and jerk him up here now. We're going to go see the queen. I'm going to say jump and you're going to say how high. The table's now set. The king is finally figuring out what's going on. Esther has 
set up the second of the meetings, chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, the king again asked Esther at the wine feast, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Queen Esther replied, If your majesty will do me the favor, and if it pleases your majesty, let my life be granted me as my wish, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, massacred, and exterminated. Had we only been sold as bondsmen and bondwomen, I would have kept silent. For the adversity is not worthy of the king's trouble. This is masterful. Absolutely masterful. What she has said is, Haman is plotting to kill your queen. In other words, she says, let my life be spared. Now, this whole book is set up with the incident with Vashti, where he has made a rash decision and in the process finds himself in need of a queen. Gone to great trouble to get himself another queen. And so his wife now leads with, oh, I'm about to be killed, and oh, by the way, so are my people. From his point of view, the operative words here is, I am about to be killed. So at this point, Haman's dead. The trap is sprung, there's nothing he can do. Verse 5, thereupon, King Ahasuerus demanded of Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who dared do this? The adversary and the enemy replied, Esther, is this evil Haman? And Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen. In other words, Haman now realizes what's happened to him. I mean, he sort of had an inkling when the king publicly humiliated him. He he got an understanding that, okay, my position is A, not secure, and B, not nearly as powerful as it was last night. Things have changed. But even so, there's then the opportunity for political maneuvering and, and, you know, the normal court intrigue and all this kind of stuff to try and get back into the king's good graces and and so forth. In other words, he's been humiliated, he's been taken down a peg, but he's still in his position and he's still in a place where he can maneuver. At this point, he realizes that the trap has just been closed on him and there's no place to go. So when Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen, the king in his fury left the wine feast for the palace garden, while Haman remained to plead with Queen Esther for his life, for he saw that the king had resolved to destroy him. So the first question then is, why does the king leave the room? I think he realizes that the situation is completely out of his control. He is not in control here. He was getting out of there to... It's sort of like when you have a fight with someone, a a family member or something like that, and you're losing badly, and you finally say, and you walk out the door and slam the door and leave. You've completely lost control of the situation. So what he does is just leaves. In that time, he's probably going to compose himself and come back in more in control of his wits. He may, in fact, bring reinforcements. I don't know. I don't think reinforcements are very far from the king and the queen's chambers, but I understand what you're saying. As I say, I think that he's lost control. He's furious. And what he needs to do is get out of there right now. So he does. And of course, Haman, realizing what's just happened to him, now turns and pleads for his life with the queen. Verse 8. 
When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet room, Haman was lying prostrate on the couch on which Esther reclined. In other words, he's laid down and, and pleading with her. But of course, what the king sees is the two of them horizontal on the same piece of furniture. Does he mean, cried the king, to ravish the queen in my own palace? No sooner did these words leave the king's lips and Haman's face was covered, than Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, What is more, a stake is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, the man whose words saved the king. Again, you see how this is all set up now? Who's Harbona? Harbona was one of the advisors clear back at the Queen Vashti incident. Harbona has not been heard from since Vashti. He's still in the court. He still has a position, but he no longer has access to the king like he had during the original feast. Remember, everybody had access to the king during the original feast, and the king, after the assassination attempt, shuts all that down. And so Harbona is one of the guys that's been shut out in a political sense. But he's there, and he's not happy with Haman. In other words, he's sort of been biding his time, waiting for an opening, just like probably two-thirds of the court has been biding their time, waiting for an opening. Now, they are not going to take up the cause of the Jews independently. They don't particularly care about the Jews one way or the other. But when the tide turns and it becomes the case that a Jew is in power, then they will do what they can to help him, but they won't take any risks to do it. There's lots and lots of people in government and there are lots of people in politics who, when you are on the ascendancy, will help you, but they won't lift a finger when you get in trouble. And that's what Harboni is. He's a political animal. He has got the solution. He knows what's going on. He knows about the gallows. He knows about the decree. He could be very well the one who gave Mordecai the information about the 15,000 talents of silver. Because remember, Mordecai had information about the conversation between Haman and the king that wasn't part of the decree. Remember, the decree went out, you can kill him, but the part about being promised 15,000 talents of silver wasn't part of the decree. That was a private conversation between Haman and the king. So there's this wide web of information flow within the palace that has not been done away with by the elevation of Haman. So when Harbona sees the situation, he immediately steps forward and lets the king know that there is in fact a gallows, and that gallows was set up by Haman. And the purpose of that gallows, notice how it's phrased, is to kill Mordecai who saved the king. So Harbona has just walked up there and slipped a knife in. Would not have done that was Haman still in power. At this point, he is willing to step up and take a risk. You know, there is some risk there. Because if he's misjudged the situation and Haman isn't killed, then Harbona's in real trouble. So he is taking some risk, but it's a risk that he judges is prudent. So he does it. So impale him on it, the king ordered, 
So they impaled Haman on the stake, which was put up for Mordecai, and the king's fury abated. I think I may stop here because we've got what, three more chapters. Yeah, ten's real short, so we've got two more chapters. Now, one of the things that I will say at this point is when most people celebrate Purim, this is really where things stop. Oh, Haman's gone, Haman's dead. But there is still a problem. That decree is still out there. Nobody is in a position to rescind it. Mordecai, although he is going to be given the king's signet, is not going to be in the position that Haman was in. The king is not going to put anybody in that position again. So giving Mordecai the king's signet is not elevating Mordecai to the position that Haman used to hold. It is simply a public demonstration to everybody that Haman no longer holds that position. In other words, I've taken the ring off of Haman. I've given it to somebody else. At this point, somebody else, who that is, doesn't really matter. It's just somebody else, and I've disposed of Haman. So don't get the impression that Mordecai is now in a position of equivalent power to what Haman had before he fell. So he has still got a problem. One of the things that we're going to find is the king isn't much interested in getting anything done here. That's what we'll find out next time as we go through this. Would somebody like closing prayer?